Good morning, everyone. What a blessing. Thank you for that song. Did you all notice the, the scripture reading? I think, I think that's a remarkable scripture because it tells us that God himself is the singer and a songwriter. Did you catch that? Now, we normally think of God in terms of power and holiness. It just kind of rolls right off of our tongues to say, God is powerful or God is holy. But that scripture says that God rejoices over you and me with singing. That means that the God of the universe loves music. It means that God composes lyrics. It means that God sings. Can you imagine that? If God is a singer, that means that God has an emotional dimension to his character, to his personality. You would have to draw that conclusion because, because what else is music? What is music anyway, especially melody and lyrics combined? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but doesn't music have a powerful kind of ordering effect over your mind and your emotions? Sometimes when I'm just stressed out or bummed out, if I just listen to beautiful music, it calms me and it brings order to my thoughts. And I think the reason for that is because those of you who are musicians, if you're, if you're actually uh, trained in music uh, formally, you know that music is math. Music is mathematical, isn't it? And that sounds so, so dry and dead. Music is math. But, but music is emotionally rendered math. And that's why it brings our minds to a sense of order. I was just blessed by that song. Thank you. What a beautiful thing it is to hear somebody vocalize their love for God in song. And what a great thought it is, according to the scripture we read, to look forward to someday actually hearing God vocalize his love over us with singing. That's going to be an amazing day. We've prayed, but uh, this particular message, I am urgent for us to understand, I am hoping, I am deeply desirous that this will click for all of us. So if you wouldn't mind, even though we've had prayer, I'm just going to pray one more time. Father in heaven, you are truly incredible. You're amazing and we love you. But Father, we, we know that there are things about you that we don't quite understand. In fact, there are things about you that, that are off-putting, at least from our perspective. We've all been lied to about you. We've all been raised to believe things about you that, that aren't true. And, and so emotionally, so often we've backed up from you, from belief, from faith, and, and we've backed up from church and from having fellowship with believers because quite honestly, Lord, many of the religions down through history and even today that bear your name have grossly misrepresented you. So, Father, we want to see you as you are, apart from all the ugly misrepresentations. Please take us to that place right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the message this morning is best served uh, by sharing with you the absolute worst summer of my life, which, strangely enough, turned out to be the best summer of my life. I didn't see that coming. It was the worst summer of my life because I was 13 years old and all I had ever known was Los Angeles, California. I knew those streets, those beaches, those people, those friends. And my mom, out of nowhere, without my permission, announced that we were moving. 
We were moving far, far away north to Sacramento. I had never been outside of Los Angeles. I didn't want to go. So I said to my mother, I mean, after all, I was 13 years old. I said, you can move. I'm not moving. (laughs) I don't know, Mom, if you've noticed this or not, but I'm 13. (laughs) And she said, you have three days to find out if any of your friends, parents, want you moving in with them. And then you're going to be in the U-Haul truck and we're leaving. Three days later, I was in the U-Haul truck and we were headed north. I found myself in a whole new neighborhood in the summer. School was out, but I knew that I was going to be enrolled in a new school coming up. I knew I was going to turn 14 in June. And at the end of the summer, I was going to be in a new school with a whole bunch of new people, new teenagers. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but teenagers are the most intimidating humans on earth. Nobody wants to encounter teenagers unless you give birth to them and they grow up into teenagers. Teenagers are intimidating and I am by nature an introvert and so I found myself in a new house in a new neighborhood in the summer riding around on my skateboard through this new place. And I saw those intimidating teenagers all through the neighborhood looking at me, the new kid on the block And I found myself getting more and more nervous. I said things to my mom like, I'm not going to school. I already know enough. Why do I need to go to school? And then, as I was riding my skateboard, this guy came riding up beside me. And he said, I'm Kyle. And Kyle and I became friends. He began to show me empty pools and half pipes. And we began writing together and we became friends. And as the summer was coming to an end, he said, hey, we're having a party. A friend of mine is having a party, an end of the summer party. You want to come? And I said, well, I don't know those people. Can I come? Yeah, you can come. You're with me. I said, all right. So we made our way to this party in August. And I walked into the house, swarming with teenagers, of course. And I did what any self-respecting introvert would do. I made my way to the sofa and sat down. And Kyle sat next to me. And he said, hey, you, you want to meet some of my friends? I said, nope. I just want to sit right here. Just like any good introvert, I'm a people watcher. So I was entertained by just sitting there in this strategic position on the sofa in the living room watching all of these teenagers come and go. The door was opening and closing, opening and closing. Teenagers coming, teenagers leaving. It was getting boring. That's also a trait of introverts. It was getting boring. And as it was getting boring and I was just about to make my exit, sitting there next to Kyle, the door opened again and the most beautiful creature I've ever seen in my life walked through the door. And I leaned over to Kyle and I said, do you know her? And he said, dude, everyone knows her. He paused and I said, would you introduce me to her? This is the introvert. Would you introduce me to her? He said, dude, she's way out of your league. Don't even try. I said, that's for her to decide. Do you know her? Yes, I know her. Will you introduce me to her? And he said, it's your pain. We got up (laughs) and we started moving through the room as I saw her in the distance, visiting with her friends, giggling, laughing, 
as 13-year-old girls do. And as they were visiting and we were getting closer and closer and closer, I leaned into Kyle and I said, Kyle, dude, what is she? And he said, what do you mean, what is she? She's human. <laughs> I said, no, 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 what, what is she? And he said, oh, I know what you mean. He said, her mom's a short Mexican lady and her dad's a tall white guy. And I said, that is the perfect DNA mix. That's what I've been looking for all my life. <laughs> 13 years of my life, down, having turned 14. And we just came up to her, and Kyle said, this is Ty, and he walked off. <laughs> and I found myself standing there, transfixed. I was just looking at her, and for not even a split second, her eyes just went straight by mine, and she continued laughing and visiting with her friends and walked off. So I made myself omnipresent, and this is before I knew anything about omnipresence. I began to anticipate her trajectory <laughs> through the room, and I would be where I knew she was going. And I'd say, hey, remember we met earlier, I'm Ty. And she said, actually, no. And she walked off giggling with her friends. Well, the party was over. And I went home and the new school year began. And as Providence would have it, and this is before I knew anything about Providence, she was in my math class. And I anticipated where she was going to sit. And I sat in the chair in the desk next to her. Oh, this is getting good, isn't it? <laughs> and then the teacher announced on the first day of school that this girl would be getting an automatic A. He knew her. And that she would be a tutor for those who needed help with math. So I raised my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I was, in fact, the first one that raised my hand as other, not a single girl, different guys' hands were going up in the room. And I said, I need tutoring with math. I don't remember any of it. <laughs> Pluses, minuses, long division, none of it. It's all gone. It's all gone. I need help with math. And she became my math tutor. And I needed such therapeutic help with math <laughs> that eventually she had to start coming to my house after school so I could introduce her to my mom, my math tutor, and her and my mom, next thing you know, are standing in the kitchen giggling and laughing, and my mom's teaching her how to cook. And I'm sitting on the sofa saying, yes, <laughs> this is it, this is it. And sure enough, we became friends, and then we became best friends, and then her friends got all offended because she was spending all her time with me. And I was like, so? And... <laughs> We ended up getting married, and then we started procreating, because that's what married people do, and we have three children, and now we've been married all these years, and it's been an incredible journey. I share all of that with you to say this. What I was experiencing is what I'm going to refer to in this message as the power of attraction, now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, you were a 14-year-old boy. Of course you were. No, no, no. I was attracted to something more. In fact, it wasn't until years later, in fact, 
that I found an old photo that I don't remember ever seeing, and I don't remember the situation. And in that photo, there I am, sitting on my mom's living room couch, sofa. There I am, and I have a guitar in my hand, and I'm strumming the guitar, obviously. I'm sitting there, and there she is, in this photo, sitting right next to me, with a Bible opened on her lap. And I said to her, years later, when I found this photo, I said, what in the world? Were you reading the Bible back then? She said, I've always read the Bible. I said, really? She said, yeah, don't you remember? I was good, you weren't. (laughs) And I said, well, yeah. And I began to realize that I was attracted to her on multiple levels. The DNA, yes, I have to admit, that was the first. I was like, whoa, wow, amazing But then the friendship begins. And I have spent all these years pulling back the layers of this girl's personality and character and discovering the most beautiful human being I've ever known. I was experiencing the power of attraction on a deep, deep level that has grown all these years. Now, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that God is the kind of God that operates on the principle of attraction. That God doesn't want your behavioral compliance. He wants your heart. That God only wants the outside, that is your life as you live it, if he can get the inside where you think and feel, where your affections reside. By which I mean God is not interested in control, but rather love. God is pursuing you and me, and he's not a micromanaging control freak. He's not at all interested in control. In fact, the Bible is not a book by which God intends to get control of you and me. Rather, the Bible is a story by which God intends to liberate you and me, to lead us into deeper and deeper levels of freedom where our relationship with him is utterly and completely voluntary with not even an iota of control or manipulation. So let's unpack it, okay? There's an Old Testament passage that is absolutely amazing, and it's kind of disconcerting, as a lot of biblical passages are, until you understand what's going on behind the scenes. This is the prophet Hosea. Hosea is unique among the prophets, because all the other prophets of the Bible, God gave them visions and dreams, and then they just wrote down what they saw in their visions and dreams. That's a very nice way to get information from God. But Hosea God didn't give Hosea a prophecy. He made Hosea a prophecy. He didn't give Hosea a vision or a dream. He asked Hosea to enact something in order to put on display a remarkable revelation of his love. So God comes to Hosea and says, the Lord said to me, Hosea is testifying now, The Lord said to me, to Hosea, go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover, that is by another person, and is committing adultery. Now just pause right there with me. 
Okay, so, so Hosea, I want you to marry that woman. I want you to fall in love with that girl, that one, that one, that one. And Hosea, when you love her, the fact is she will commit adultery. She will not be faithful. She will violate the integrity of your love, Hosea. And here's the assignment. When she's unfaithful to you, Hosea, I want you to keep on loving her. Now, why? Why? Is it on now? Yes? No? Maybe? Hello? Okay. Now, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fall in love with her, and if, she, if she's unfaithful, and she will be, I want you to keep on loving her. Now, now what is God's reasoning for this? What, what kind of odd assignment is this? Hosea must be thinking, Lord, Lord, not her. I, I, I'm actually, I kind of like, I kind of like, like Rebecca or Rachel or some other biblical chick. I don't know, somebody. I want somebody else, Lord. That's the girl from high school I remember. Can I marry her? And the Lord is like, no, it's this one. And God has some, some reason for this. And the reason is, notice this, The Lord said, go and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. And notice the next two words after the comma. Can you see that? What are the next two words? Say them out loud. Just like. Okay. So the Bible is full of this kind of thing. That this is like that. The Bible is full of stories and parables and metaphors. And all of those stories and parables and metaphors are in order to communicate something else. This is like that. That's a pattern of communication in Scripture. Anybody who is a teacher of children understands this principle, where you, you, you teach children in the form of giving a metaphor or a symbol or a story in order for them to build a psychological bridge over to the point you really want to make for them. So God is saying, Hosea, go love that woman She will be unfaithful to you, and I want you to keep on loving her. And Hosea, when you feel what it feels like to love somebody with every fiber of your being, but not to be loved back, when you feel those feelings, when you have that experience, tell my people that this experience is just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. In other words, Hosea, tell my people that the nature of my desired relationship with them is one of love, not one of manipulation or control or coercion. I want something deep and beautiful and wonderful with them. And tell them that my love for them is steady and unbroken no matter what they do. This is an Old Testament concept called covenant, as you'll see in just a moment. Covenant is the idea of faithfulness in a relationship. It's relational integrity. So when we enter in, we still use the word, it's kind of an archaic word, but we still use the word sometimes with regards to the marriage, what? Covenant. We mean that two people have said yes to one another on a level where they have said, I will be faithful to you. We say things like, till death do us part. That's a a level of commitment that is steady, unbroken, solid. 
Or it's supposed to be. Theoretically, that's the idea of covenant. Now, God is essentially saying, I love you, human beings. And he's defining the, what we sometimes in theology call the sin problem, which sounds rather austere and weird to my ears. I wasn't raised with religion, so it all sounds austere and weird to me. And that's why I uh, engage my mind to try to understand what in the world all this is about. And God is essentially saying this thing we call sin, the sin problem, is not merely breaking cold rules on tables of stone. The Bible isn't God handing you a list of to-dos, of moral to-dos, and saying, hey, I'm God, you're not, basic arrangement, it's my universe, you do what I say or else. The Bible isn't God wanting control, the Bible is God wanting reciprocation. The Bible is God saying, your sin is like adultery. It's a broken love relationship. It's a violated love relationship. That's what sin is. Now, you can construct this from many different angles in the Bible. For example, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, sin is transgression of the law. That sounds rather law-ish. Sounds like control. It sounds like God's got some laws and you better keep them. And if you don't, you're a sinner. But check this out. When the Bible uses the word law in its own vernacular and within its own context, follow this. Romans chapter 13 verse 10 says, Love, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. What is the law? When the Bible when the Bible throws down this word law, what does it mean? It means love. It means relational integrity. So in Matthew 22, when these religious people come to Jesus and want to trip him up, and they say, hey, what's the greatest commandment of the 10? They're thinking there are 10 commandments, and there are. What's the greatest one? And Jesus says, I'll tell you the greatest one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So vertical and horizontal love. Jesus is saying the law is love. The law is what love looks like in action relationally. So when the Bible says sin is transgression of the law, you could just as accurately read that to say sin is transgression of love. Sin is in fact anti-love. Sin is anything that is contrary to love. It is relational brokenness. And that's the language that God is employing in Hosea. He's saying, Hosea, fall in love with that woman. She's going to be unfaithful to you, but you do not be unfaithful to her no matter what. And in so doing, you will be putting on display an enactment of my faithful love to human beings regardless of their attitude toward me. This is a description of what we might call unconditional love. That is love that is not conditioned by any external circumstances. This is God saying there's nothing you can do to stop me from loving you. I will keep loving you no matter what you do. And all the unfaithfulness that you can heap upon me will not alter my love for you. So this is God's predicament. So he describes back in chapter 2, 
his way of resolving the quote-unquote sin problem or this relational unfaithfulness. This is fantastic, but you've got to wrap your mind around it. Make sure you're tracking with me on all of these points so that the punchline makes absolute sense. Therefore, God says, behold, I will allure her. Here God is presenting himself metaphorically, symbolically, as a man who's in love with a woman. And human beings, collectively, corporately, God is saying, you're the one I want. You're the woman I'm in love with, corporately, human beings as a whole. Some of the men here might not like the fact that corporately we're a chick, but we are. According to the Bible, according to the Bible, corporately, God views us in the feminine, okay? So God says, I'm the suitor, I'm the pursuer, I'm the one who wants to cultivate the relationship. You are unfaithful, sin. So God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to allure her to me. I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. Another version says, I'm going to bring her to a quiet place without distractions. And what am I going to do when I get you alone? When I get you in that place all alone where it's just you and me, what am I going to do? I'm going to speak comfort to you. I'm going to speak affirmation. I'm going to speak love. I'm going to speak faithfulness to you. I'm going to declare my heart toward you when I get you alone. God is trying to get you alone. He's trying to get me alone in your thoughts, in your feelings. Right now, you're sitting in the company of a group. A bunch of people are sitting around you, and yet God is trying to get you right now alone with him in this group. Trying to get you alone with him in your thoughts and in your feelings. He's trying to paint a picture of himself for you that is alluring. Now, that's a strange word for God to use. What would be a synonym for allure? Maybe to entice? To attract? God is saying, I'm going to save you by alluring you. Now, if you think about it, this is a remarkable thing for the most powerful person in the universe to say. Because God could simply pull rank. He happens to be the most powerful person in the universe. So if it were in God's heart to do so, if God wanted to, he could immediately get all of our compliance on a behavioral level. He could just appear in overwhelming, dazzling majesty and flex his divine omnipotence and say, listen, I don't know who you think you are, but I'm God and you're going to do what I say. And we would all comply out of a sheer sense of terror. But the problem would be that in our obedience, in our compliance, the question would remain, does anybody love God? And the answer would be no. Outward compliance does not equate to obedience or love. So God says, I'm not going to manipulate you. I'm not going to coerce you. No force. Listen carefully. This is one of the most important things that you will ever comprehend about God and about life. Are you ready? Coercion and love cannot occupy the same emotional space. To the degree that force is exerted, the capacity for love will recede in a relationship. 
This is true of marriage. This is true of child raising. This is true of friendship. This is true of working relationships. To the degree that you try to manipulate or force someone into subjection, they will begin to shut down emotionally and back up from you. And you will end up in isolation as a human being until you are willing to have relationships with an open hand. Until you are willing to say with some ancient Chinese guy who came up with this, if you have a bird in a cage, set it free. If it comes back, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was. Or if you like, how about a 1970s 38 special song? This is an incredible rock song that says, hold on loosely, but don't let go. If you hold too tightly, you're going to lose control. And that is precisely how all relationships work. And God knows this because he is the architect of human personality and character. And all the dynamics that govern relationships are from him ultimately. And so God is saying to you and me, I'm not going to force, I'm not going to coerce, I'm not going to manipulate. I'm going to make you mine by love and love alone or not at all. I don't want control, I want your love. So the passage in John 12, 32, where Jesus is going to go to the cross, he employs a similar concept, but he uses a different word than allure. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, this is a reference to his death on Calvary's cross, I, when I am lifted up on the cross, will, what's that word? Draw, not push, but draw you to me. I will draw you to me. In other words, I will love you with such a quality of love that if you could just get a glimpse of it, you will begin to lean into me rather than to lean away from me. You will see something so beautiful in Jesus that you will be voluntarily attracted to him. And let me say this. If you've grown up with any religion whatsoever, including this one, if you've grown up in any kind of philosophical outlook, if you've been raised with any kind of pain or abuse or trauma, whatever you've been through in life that has communicated to you, a controlling, negative, austere, condemnatory picture of God, it's a lie. God loves you more than his own life. And you need to, as fast as possible, push the eject button on all of that theology, all of that picture of God that keeps you emotionally distant from him. If you have any notion in your mind that I'm not going to church, Because God is, and whatever you fill in the blank, you simply haven't met him as he really is. Give God a chance, and I'm guaranteeing you, you will fall in love. Head over heels in love. So going back to the Hosea passage. So then God says, you remember back in verse 14, he said, I'm going to allure you to me. And then in verse 16, he says, and it shall be at that day, says the Lord, what day? The day when I allure you, when I exert the power of my love over your free heart. When I allure you to me in that day that you will call me, check this out. This is God talking. He says, the day is coming when you're going to call me my husband and you will no longer call me my master. What? This is what I like to refer to as the ultimate paradigm shift. 
religiously, theologically, and just on a sociological level for all relationships. But here's the thing. God is saying that when you see my love, when you see my love for you, you will make a clean break from the master-servant orientation toward God. And you will begin to perceive me as a good husband. You will begin to perceive me in language of love, in an emotional context of affection. You will not continue to relate to me on the premise of control. You will begin to relate to me on the premise of voluntary love. This is remarkable. And by the way, I'm just going to point this out in passing. This is in the Old Testament where we're told there is a big, monstrous, scary God lurking. This is the God of the Old Testament. And this God is saying The day is coming when you will ultimately cease to perceive me in terms of master-slave dynamics and you will begin to perceive me in terms of husband-wife dynamics. Now that assumes a good marriage. I've had people come to me and say, man, I come from an abusive background and my marriage was horrible, so don't, don't use that husband metaphor on me. But I always say to them, but you got married because you had a perception of what marriage ought to be, right? Nobody ever says, you know what? You're a psycho and I'm going to marry you. (laughs) Everybody gets married by saying, wait a minute, I think I'm in love with you and you have an expectation, don't you? It's the same with the father concept. I have people sometimes say, don't talk about God as a father. I had a bad father. But I said, but you long for a good father. Because you know what the ideal is. The only reason anyone gets married is because they have a perception, at least in some kind of shadowy form, of what marriage ought to be. It ought to be a beautiful thing. And so God is saying, the beautiful thing, the thing you know it ought to be is what I want with you. Now, what are are the relational dynamics in a slave-master relationship? What kinds of things are going on in a slave-master relationship? Fear. Fear is the motivator. I got to look at the time just so I make sure I don't go over whatever that means. <laughs> so a slave-master relationship is governed by what? Fear. That's why you do what you do. But what is the motivator? What is the actuating thing that's taking place in a good marriage? In a good marriage. Don't transpose your bad marriage over this thing. Think of the good thing. What's, what's the motivator here? love. So God is essentially saying to you and me, I want you to make the ultimate paradigm shift. I want you to stop perceiving me as a master who wants control. I want you to begin perceiving me as a husband who wants to have a romantic tryst with you. I want you to fall in love with me on the premise of my love for you. And of course, this is God using marriage as a metaphor, right? So, so this is incredible. When we go on in Hosea, God literally drops to one knee and proposes. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. That means covenant. That means faithfulness. That means forever. I'm, I'm going to enter into a relationship with you that will be sustained for all eternity, forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. And then he begins to describe the characteristics of the relationship. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, I'll always do the right thing for you. In justice, I will never violate you. In loving kindness, you can expect 
tenderness from me. In mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I will never violate the integrity of the relationship. And then God says, and you shall know the Lord. When you experience me with all that faithfulness and righteousness and justice and mercy, when you perceive me through that lens, then you really know me as I really am. Then you shall know the Lord. And this word know is strategically placed here in the matrimonial context. Because the word know in Scripture, in the Old Testament specifically, is the Hebrew word yada, Y-A-D-A, and it refers primarily to the consummation of the matrimonial commitment in the sexual act. For example, back in Genesis 4, the first usage of the word Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and brought forth a son. The word know there is not like knowledge, like data knowledge or information knowledge. It's not a spreadsheet. It's not saying Adam contemplated the facts about Eve and she got pregnant. It's not saying that. It's saying Adam intimately knew Eve and she got pregnant. God is taking the most intimate relationship that we know as human beings and he's lifting it up and he's using it as a metaphor for the kind of spiritual relationship he wants with you and me. He's saying, when you know my love for you, you will know me. You will have intimacy with me. You will really know me as I really am. We will be intimate as a husband and wife in nakedness before one another. I already know you. You will come to know me by virtue of my love for you. This is remarkable. So when we begin to know him, in this way, what do we know? Jesus constitutes the absolute zenith revelation of God's drawing, alluring love for you and me. Jesus came to this world, in fact, I don't have time for this, but I'll just tell you, I'll just send you on a rabbit trail of study that is worth your time. When Jesus came to this world in the Gospel of John, he's introduced at the beginning of the Gospel of John as a bridegroom who has now come to earth seeking his bride. John the Baptist says to those who are jealous of Jesus' rising influence, and they want John the Baptist to continue as the rabbi, as the teacher, John the Baptist says, no, 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 I'm not the guy you think I am. I'm not him. He's him. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. He's the groom, and you're his bride, so he must increase, and I need to, dec- I need to step aside. I'm just the best man in this situation. He's the one you need to fall in love with, not me. That's John the Baptist introducing Jesus to the world as a lover seeking his beloved. So that when we come to Jesus, we see the alluring revelation of God's love. Now, strap in, hold on, because we're about to have a mind-blowing understanding of God's alluring love. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind, this character, this personality, this way of thinking and feeling and processing reality. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, notice the language, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery or something to be taken illegitimately to be equal with God. In other words, he was, by all rights, equal with God. He didn't steal it. He didn't rob it. He is, in fact, God. Now watch this. But he made himself of no reputation. Hold on to those words. 
He made himself. That is, he voluntarily did something. He made himself. He wasn't forced into this. His back's not against a wall. He doesn't have to do any of this. He voluntarily made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The words here that I told you to hold on to, no reputation, Paul says. Jesus, who was in fact equal with God, made himself of no reputation. Those two words in the English are the translator's best effort to approximate a Greek word, which is kenosis. The word kenosis literally means empty, to empty, or to to become nothing. And so, for example, Philippians 2, the NIV renders that word as he made himself nothing. That's how, how it translates kenosis. Kenosis in the New King James Version is no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. Here, this version says, these translators said, ah, there's something deeper here. He made himself nothing by comparison to what he was. This is the one who was in very nature God, and he stepped way down. He emptied himself. And so the Phillips translation gets even more to the point for he who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege. That's kenosis. Now, what does this mean? For God to strip himself voluntarily of all divine privileges and prerogatives. There are three big divine privileges and prerogatives that pertain to God and nobody else. They're the three big omnes. God is omnipotent. That means God is all-powerful. God is omniscient. That means God knows everything all the time simultaneously. God never has an aha moment. He never says, whoa, I never thought of that before. God just knows everything. He's omniscient. And God is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere all the time. Not in a pantheistic sense. God isn't present in everything. He's present to everything. It's an adjacency concept, not a nature concept. So these are the three big omnes. These are God's divine privileges and prerogatives. These are are abilities that pertain to God and God alone. And the scripture tells us that Jesus condescended and voluntarily, by virtue of his incarnation, taking our human nature upon himself, that Jesus literally laid aside those abilities, those prerogatives. For example, with omnipotence, Jesus himself testified in John chapter 5. He said, I can of mine own self do nothing. Everything you see me doing is a display of the Father's power working through me as a human being now. I have put my personal omnipotence in remission for you. What about omniscience? Jesus is described in Luke's gospel with these words that the child, Jesus, grew in stature And in wisdom. To grow in stature means to grow up physically, biologically. To grow in wisdom means to learn things you didn't know before. To have things occur to you. To learn. Which means there are things you don't what? Know. Jesus laid aside these powers for you and me and then came to Calvary's cross. Having laid aside his divine prerogatives, now the cross makes so much incredible sense. Because unlike another theological idea that says that what happened at Calvary was a projection, 
that Jesus didn't actually suffer and die. It wasn't actual emotional trauma for him or physical suffering for him. This is God projecting something for us to see, but it's not experiential for God. That's the common Catholic Protestant idea of what happened at Calvary. Whereas the Bible is telling us that the sufferings of Christ, listen, the sufferings of Christ were actual. Experientially, he actually underwent what we see him undergoing. He experienced these things by virtue of the fact that he voluntarily submitted himself to some narrow parameters. What were the narrow parameters? He became a human being and put his own omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence in remission. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he is not simultaneously with omnipresence, also outside of that experience, looking down and saying, no sweat. Jesus is not transcending the event with omniscience, feeling the dark horror of separation from God on Calvary's cross, but simultaneously with omniscience, transcending it and saying, that's not actually happening. No, Jesus is psychologically and emotionally and physically confined to the actual experience of Gethsemane and Calvary. And what did that entail? It entailed this. As he goes into Gethsemane, this is chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus goes with his disciples into Gethsemane, this is the point, by the way, that you need to sit up a little straighter, breathe a little deeper, and oxygenate your frontal lobe. If you have have gone into neutral... This is not the time for that to happen. This is where you really need to tune in. Jesus is with his disciples and they're walking into Gethsemane. This is right before he's going to be crucified. That dark, dark night in Gethsemane. And Jesus is walking with the disciples and he says, notice the language, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of even unto death. Stay here and watch with me, pray with me. I'm, 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 I'm imploding psychologically and emotionally. I'm overwhelmed with something. And he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. The word soul here is the Greek word psyche, from which we get English words like psyche. This is the idea of his mind, his emotions. Are you following? Are you tracking? Jesus says, my soul, my psyche is the epicenter of my suffering, not my body. Now, follow the, follow the chronology here. When he's in Gethsemane, has any physical torture been inflicted upon him as of yet? No. He's not been beaten by the Roman soldiers. The nails haven't been driven through his hands. The crown of thorns has not been violently pressed upon his head. Not a single drop of blood has been drawn from his flesh due to physical abuse. And yet, right there in Gethsemane, he says, I'm dying. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. I'm dying on the inside from causes that are not physical. I'm dying from psychological trauma of some kind. And then he describes it further. And he went a little farther and he fell on his face. He didn't formally say, I think I shall pray. He fell on his face. He began to weep, according to the book of Hebrews, with strong crying and tears, quote-unquote, from Paul in the book of Hebrews. He's weeping 
at this point, and he prays, oh, my father, heaving with the internal pain that he's enduring. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What is this cup? Again, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol. This cup is described elsewhere in the Bible. In Revelation 14, it's called the cup of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture of mercy into the cup of his indignation. This is describing a human being encountering the full-blown reality of his or her guilt with no buffer of mercy between to give any sense of assurance of God's acceptance. Jesus psychologically is taking upon himself, more accurately, Jesus is taking into himself the collective whole of all human shame and guilt and sin. Then an angel at that point, according to Luke's gospel, appeared from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus is on the cold ground, heaving, crying, in agony, dying under the weight of the sin of the whole world. And an angel has to be sent to speak words of comfort and affirmation, to strengthen him to be able to continue. The implication is that Jesus would have died in Gethsemane and never reached the cross if God had not intervened to literally save his life by sending an angel to comfort him with words of remembrance. Remember the voice of God's favor at your baptism. Remember Remember, God is with you. The Father does love you. What about the transfiguration? Yes, yes, Jesus is remembering through penetrating the darkness of the present horror of our sin. He is being reminded by the angel of God's love and he begins to penetrate out through the darkness, the psychological darkness. So he's strengthened and he gets up and now he can go to Calvary. And as he goes off to Calvary, the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The collective whole of all human sin attributed to Jesus as though he were the guilty party in every murder, every rape, every act of child abuse, every lying, conniving, gossiping whisper, every selfish impulse that you and I have ever, ever committed, Jesus identifies with the entire filthy load of sin. He takes it upon his conscience as if he's the guilty party. Isaiah 53 goes on, he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's a solidarity statement in the context of Scripture. This is Jesus identifying with you and me in our sin rather than staying aloof from it. And he bore the sin of many. He didn't bear our sin as a physical weight, like a sack of bricks or potatoes. He bore it as a psychological and emotional weight in the form of guilt and shame. And as Jesus is hanging between heaven and earth, burying all of that for you and me, he cries out in the agony of his soul, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus feels what it feels like for sin to separate a person from God, from the sinner's point of view, not from God's point of view. And as Jesus hangs between heaven and earth, something vital needs to be understood here. He wasn't trapped. 
A song says he could have called 10,000 angels based on a scripture that says, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, don't defend me with your sword. Don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call to my father and he would send 12 legions of angels to deliver me right now. In another place in John chapter 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely of myself. Jesus doesn't find himself trapped. His back is not against a wall. Listen carefully. He is there hanging on the cross, bearing your sin and mine voluntarily because he chooses you and your well-being and your happiness and your eternal life over his own. He's there because he chooses to be. In a book called The Desire of Ages, if you don't know this author or this book, let us know. We'll drop you a copy into your hands. This commentary on the Gospels. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave as a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's utterly alone, enveloped in the psychological darkness of our shame and guilt. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation would be eternal. And he just kept on loving you and me straight through to his own complete demise. Jesus literally, God literally loves you and me more than his own eternal life. It's as if you and I are strategically seated on a sofa and everything this world has to offer just keeps coming in the door and walking on out. Everything this world has to offer is parading itself before you and me on a daily basis. In magazines and television and billboards and all the stuff this world has to offer, wealth and popularity and prestige and education and a good 401k package and a motorhome, and a good retirement, and property, and an orchard, and a relationship with the perfect person, and, and, and. Everything this world has to offer, coming in the door, parading itself before you and me, and if you haven't noticed, it's all getting kind of boring. And just as you're about to give up on the world and life and yourself, the most beautiful person in the universe walks through the door. And you look into his eyes as he hangs between heaven and earth on your behalf. And somehow, in your heart, you hear him through all the pain and the suffering that he's enduring. Somehow you read it in his eyes. Somehow you hear him saying to you, I love you. I love you more than my own life. And the question that hangs before the whole world, not just you and me, but the whole world, the whole world, the question that hangs before the world in Jesus hanging on the cross is simply and profoundly this. Are you attracted? When you see that kind of love, are you attracted? If you are, and if you give yourself to it, to him, if you get up from the sofa 
and you overcome all your natural fears and inhibitions and all your introvertness spiritually and religiously, if you get up off the sofa and you make your way across the room, you'll find yourself face to face with the most beautiful person in the universe and everything will get better for you. Father in heaven, you are truly beautiful and amazing, so much so that sometimes we can hardly even believe it's true because it's so good. Thank you for loving us in Jesus. I pray for everyone here that all of us would find ourselves attracted to you. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because you are truly attractive, you are truly beautiful, and we find ourselves allured by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.